Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. We're here with Chris Morton from List as a special guest and, and somebody who I've known for quite a while because we were both peers uh, when we started InVenture. But as with all the, the people that we like to speak to, we want to get a little bit of background to, to what made you uh, the, the person you are today. So maybe we we'll kick things off a little bit with your background. What did you study in school and where? So I studied uh, physics and philosophy at Cambridge. And you know, my father is a professor um, of engineering at Oxford. My brother is a professor of quantum computing at UCL, and so kind of had a very scientific um, upbringing. You know, grew up in a, in, a, in a university town in the states, and so I kind of was, was feeling that pulled in that direction to, to, to kind of go into academia, into the sciences. But you know, I guess I always felt like science was uh, or technology was more interesting in a practical sense, what you could do with it, rather than just advancing it uh, for its own sake. And that's why you know, I did the three years at Cambridge, and then uh, that, was, that was enough for me. So, I mean, you graduated basically with a very quant, it seems, very scientific side to you. And then what did you do after that? Did you, well, did you... I mean, there was actually, it's actually a mix. So the mm. physics was super quant. Mm. The philosophy, you know... Not at all, not at yeah. all. I mean, it's still very logical, rational, but, mm. um, you know, and I actually really enjoyed that, that mix of doing something involving both the arts and the sciences, and that's probably reflected in what I do every day at work, which is mixing, you know, significant data challenges at list, yeah. uh, also with trying to, the emotional nature of trying to sell something in a, in a very, um, it's an emotional vertical, you know, people yeah. are buying from emotional decisions yeah. and understanding the sort of product challenges there, um, yeah. I think it kind of, it kind of fits. That's, well, it's, it's like in 2020 hindsight, it's like you were destined <laughs> to, to get there. But so what did you do afterwards? What was the first job that you did after you graduated then? Um, or what did you create? So, so I never did a gap year and I was yeah. really keen to go traveling. Um, and so I went to, uh, there's just, there happened to be like a small company next to where I lived. And I said, you know, can I work in your laboratory for six months and then earn some money and go traveling and try to figure, figure out what I wanted to do? And you know, the, the, this was actually like a renewable energy startup where they, where they, they tested the um, fluids from gearboxes in wind turbines or jet engines. And the idea is like, it's like taking a blood sample. You can take a blood sample and you can figure out like, are you sick or are you healthy? Are you about to have some sort of heart attack or not? And you can do the same thing by looking at these fluids from, from engines. And you know, the, so the guy said, yeah, you can work in the, in the lab for six months. And you literally take a pipette and put it down there and do that you know, a million times a day. Mm. Um, you know, or he said, well, why don't you work? Is there any other part of the business you want to work in uh, where you wouldn't want to go and quit after six months? And you could maybe travel with us. Um, and they had like a sales team. And the sales team kind of went around Mexico and Europe and all this. Um, and so I started down that route, still thinking I was probably going to go and quit after six months. But by that time, I found it pretty interesting. I was learning a lot from the entrepreneur who was running it. And so I ended up staying there for two years. And that was really my first taste of startup life. Um, having wanted to start something when I was 16 at school and kind of getting a little bit down the road there. And I kind of shelved those ideas. And at university, this is in, in 2000, 2002, no one is really setting up businesses. Everyone from my class was going on to the city to do banking, to do consultancy. Um, and so I just didn't really think it was you know, an option. And then having spent time in this company, which I completely found by accident, it was literally the closest company to where I lived. 
um, I kind of got back into the startup world and that's again had a pretty profound impact. Mm. And as part of that experience with that startup, what would be like the number one lesson that you walked away with thinking, crap, if I ever start a company, I'll never do that? So this was in renewables yeah. and it's subsidy driven and capital intensive. And although I did care and still do care you know, about sustainability, um, you know, I just saw like there was a lot of external factors that were challenging the success of that business. And you know, that was a lesson learned for, for the business that I did eventually want to start, which is you know, consumer web and a marketplace model. So you know, we get to carry an inventory worth, I think, $25 billion, but we don't pay a penny for it because it's carried by our partners. Right. Okay, so what happened after that? Was that when you joined uh, Bollerton after that, or did you do something in the middle? No, I did something in the middle. Mm. So I went from working for a startup to working for the government. Uh, which is which is like the opposite journey, and the role was it was a government science organization, where um, the model was you know get a lot of, of bright PhDs scientists to uh, work on you know technology research briefs from other companies, and then uh, see if we can build retain some of the intellectual property and build businesses around that. So for example, there was a big defense company in the states that asked us to develop some stealth material and did a lot of work and came up with scotch tape with like a special diffraction, uh, you know, special grating cut into it. And then that defense company owned the intellectual property for all uh, vehicles. And so we were left with a, with a stealth, stealth material that could not be used in a vehicle, uh, which you'd think was kind of challenging to say, well, what can we do with it? And we realized that you can coat wind turbine blades in this material, and a lot of wind turbines were not getting planning permission because they were being built too close to airports. And you have these huge blades cutting through the air, which look like a plane coming into land. And so, and it's quite cheap material once you've done the work to design the the, the, the grating. And so, we kind of try to sell a, set up a small business within this huge organisation to go and um, you know help planning help uh, wind turbine developers get planning permission. Mm. Yeah. And there's like other other examples of like building small businesses within this big behemoth. Mm. And uh, that was pretty cool. Like there was a lot of lot, you know a lot of funding to do a lot of cool projects, but um, it was just a bureaucratic nightmare. And you you know you'd go to the board saying like I really want to go and do this. This is my recommendations. Yeah. And then you know they'd say oh well what about this one thing? And be like okay great I'll just email it to you like in an hour when I get back to my desk. And like no no it's okay you can just talk about it at the next board meeting, which is in six months time. And like that pace of development. Um, you know, just I just I found it really challenging, and right. so that was like my first and last big company experience, uh, and that's also kind of stuck with me. Yeah. Um, so then, how did you transition from that into into so venture? Then I think like all the while I was thinking about starting a business. Yeah. Um, and so actually, at the time where I was working for this this government company, I was also working putting on uh, producing a play at the Old Vic Theatre down the road, and. You know, part of the producer role is wrangling creative talent from all over. You want somebody to write the score, people to do like the set, the actors, script writers, and it was actually quite difficult to find people in online communities where you could come together to create something. And I was thinking, like, how can we make something like this? Uh, and in going down the the, the the journey, it just became uh, really clear to me that I didn't know enough about how to do this. So this is in like, well, whatever, 2005. Uh, you know, and, and again, the, the friends from college, no one is starting businesses at this point either. And so I thought, well, what is the best way to learn? And I, I then sent just speculative letters to, to Index, 
to benchmark as it was then, which is now Bulletin, and um, I think Excel. And just to kid you a little bit, letters like like proper letters. Uh, God, good question. <laughs> may, maybe yeah, maybe real letters. Yeah, we're dating ourselves, dude. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so yeah, you sent you sent all these yeah, and then, snail mail letters over. Yeah, so. I, I, maybe it's an email. I don't know. Right, okay. Okay. So so um, and like completely shockingly, like they replied. You know, Index said they just hired somebody. It turned out to be Alex Gazelius, if you know. Nice. Yes. Of um, uh, and Benchmark interviewed me, and, and you know, in the interview, I said, look, I want to leave in at least three years to start my own business, and if I haven't left by then, please fire me. And they were like, okay, it's, it's a punchy thing to say in your first interview, but that works for us. Um, and you know, that was basically my, you know, it's a very, very specialized MBA where you know, if you want to start a business working with partners who've done this before, you know, one of the partners I worked with is a guy who built a multi-billion, sold a multi-billion dollar business, getting to work with you know, smart founders every day and learn from their experiences. Uh, you don't spend money like you do in an MBA, you get to sort of reasonably well paid and you can save that away and actually use that as your own startup funding. Um, you know, and you're building a network so that when you do come to raise, you know, you'll just know who to drop, you know, drop people line. Um, and that, that was like, in hindsight, a really, really helpful move. And mm. so on my second, you know, second anniversary, I quit uh, and started the business. And then, you know, the guy, the partner who I used to work with the most, this guy, Mark Evans, you know, he you know, eventually joined the board, and it's great to have like been working, you know, with him for a few years, and now to also yeah. be working with him in, in building of this business as well. Yeah, and what would you say like over the course of the the two and a half years that you were at, at, at Bollerton, um, what would you say the the key lesson that you learned that you have applied and has worked out the way you expected it, and what has been the one thing that Inversely, you were like, yeah, okay, I got this. It worked for X and Y and Z company, and therefore it will work for List. And you're like, holy crap, this is a little bit more difficult than I expected. So, I mean, I mean, specifically on, I mean, there's so many answers to those questions. I mean, you, the juiciest ones. Yeah. Well, you know, you see, I say you get to work with these smart founders. I guess, you know, you see a veneer. You don't necessarily know exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. You know, the founders who are pitching to you are not necessarily giving you the warts and all. The ones who you work with, you know, you kind of build trust with, and at the very beginning, you know, they may still be, um, you know, kind of feeling out the relationship and how much they're comfortable to share. And so, you know, I guess like one of the first learnings I had within a few months of starting List was that the tragedy or seeming tragedy is part of the course, and that like company ending things will happen to you all the time, and you will think, like, why me? Why has this happened? And then you talk to other founders, and you're like, "Oh my God! If you think that's bad, talk to listen to what happened to to, to me." And, and actually, the first few months in, uh, of List, we spent uh, at Songkick's offices. And Ian, the founder there, is, is uh, well, and, and um, well, Ian's a college friend of mine, yeah. as is Pete. And uh, you know, we'd heard I had some particularly bad news super early on, and I was trying to digest this in the coffee machine there, uh, in the coffee uh, by the coffee machine in the kitchen. And Pete saw me there and looking like I'd been hit by a truck and said, you know, mate, what's happened? And I told him and he's like, okay, get your coffee, sit out on the step. This is what our first few months were like. And it was just incredibly uh, helpful to understand that like everyone goes through this. Every company that you look up to, you admire, whose products you use, have had these, you know, gut-wrenching moments. And knowing that just makes you much more prepared for them. But I didn't get that impression from, from the sort of 30,000 foot view I got as an investor. Mm. 
Um, to answer the second part, uh, or the second question, so we started the business in 2010. I'd been making some investments in social gaming. My co-founder, Seb, had, was running his own social gaming business. Um, and you know, Zuckerberg had gone on the record by saying, if I had to guess what would be next after social gaming on social media platforms, it'll be social commerce. And so you know, we kind of took everything we'd learned about how you know, social curation was becoming this thing. I mean, Pinterest was not really well known, but beginning to make some interesting noises. And we were like, OK, great. We want to create this, this shopping, this, the best way for people to buy fashion online. Uh, you know, part of it's going to be aggregation, part of it's going to be curation, and that discovery process is going to be driven through social following. And we spent, you know, kind of made, made perfect sense to us at the time, spent a lot of effort and runway chasing that, that uh, belief, um, and ultimately realized, you know, maybe nine months in, that, that uh, it was a flawed hypothesis. And there, you know, you look at what's happening in the market around you, you try to extrapolate and apply it to your own journey, and for various reasons I can go into later, what works wonderfully well for content, what works wonderfully well for games, did not apply to this uh, you know, highly personal part of commerce. All right, cool. Hold that thought because I think uh, I definitely want to go back to it a little bit later after you've had a chance to introduce the list, uh, the list proposition from the very beginning, which I heard was somewhat inspired by Spotify. Um, maybe you can share kind of what was the, what, how did the idea come up? How did the idea come up? So. So there's kind of two or a few, a few ways. Um, you know, one was I wanted to start a business. I wanted it to be in consumer web and not capital intensive areas. I wanted it to be in commerce because I wanted to, to, it to be a business rather than a community. Um, so those are kind of like that's setting some of the, the, the ground. Constraints, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted it to have the potential to be a big global business. Uh, you know, at the same time, I was living in a house with some college friends uh, you know, five of us there, and three of them were uh, women who just loved shopping online. You know, and we'd sit in the living room, you know, and I'd kind of watch them browsing all these different tabs open, different sites open, and you know, just really began to develop an appreciation just by living in the south with these friends of some of the challenges that they faced. You know, when it came to guy shopping, like to give you a sense, like Mr. Porter didn't even exist then, so there was not like a lot of places for for, for guys to buy. Fashion online, you know, in terms of in terms of women's fashion online, there were a few places, but most of the brands were not selling online. You know, most of the department stores in this country were not selling online. This is 2010. It's kind of crazy how late it happened. And so, you know, began to sort of put these these ideas together and realize that you know there were clear category leaders that provided customers with the best way to consume that category. And Spotify is a great example. You know, Spotify has every song. If you want to search, you can search every song. If you want to discover, you can discover using playlists. Um, and so we began to think, like, what is it going to take to build a category leader uh, in the world of fashion? And you know, we realized that we'd have to have this huge inventory, and we couldn't carry an inventory, because the biggest stores in the world uh, you know, have maybe 10, 20, 30,000 items. And, you know, when we ag and they're constrained because these items are really expensive to buy, and it's highly seasonal. So if they don't sell within the season, suddenly all that margin is gone. And so we figured out that we could probably aggregate the inventory. And then, you know, just like you can search and discover on Spotify, we wanted to build these two user journeys on top of our aggregated platform. Um, you know, and that's, that was kind of the, you know, the synthesis of all these ideas. As I mentioned, initially we thought that discovery would be following your friends and following lists made by your friends. And we quickly realized that actually following lists made by the brands that you love by authorities, influencers in the space carries far more weight 
And I guess like if you look at Spotify, um, you know, there's that bar on the right hand side about what your friends are listening to. Um, you know, I've always struggled with that as a product feature because you know my interest in music is faceted. Um, so like, of all my friends, I only care about the music that let's say 10% listen to. And having a stream of all of them, um, you know, I find majority of the recommendations are not interesting. It's to overwhelming, me. right? It's overwhelming, but there's, there's just it's just not enough, not a good enough um, identifier uh, of, of, of you know a similarity. Mm. Um, you know, and, and uh, again, we found the same thing by following your friends, using mm. Facebook Connect, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so, uh, you know, kind of changed it. So I, I think the you kind of opened up the, the, the question naturally just from your last um, point, but there is quite this range of, of startups that are coming, coming up in the fashion space, trying to tackle everything from uh, the social, which you just covered, right, the social angle, and the question is whether or not we're ready for that again. Like sometimes ideas have to come back in a mm -hmm. different way, you know, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be Snapchat or you know so something a, a different mechanism by which to allow social not to be as overwhelming as Spotify's social feature can be. Um, alternatively, it can be like smart automated type curation, you know, mm -hmm. like for whatever reason. I know that the list has some of that. Mm -hmm. uh, then there is what I'm going to call authoritative or editorial curation, whether it be on the basis of you know, a specialist or a, a magazine or some sort, some sort of authority. And um, just curious to sort of to hear your thoughts on, on if you maybe you take fashion, but maybe take things that are very subjective as opposed to, let's say, electronics, which are can be more feature based. Yeah. What what is the evolution of that? What what's like? Is, is there a, is there a, a space in the industry to accommodate all different variants, or is is like fashion one of those that? is mo mostly towards like the service industry where you need to have somebody basically pushing certain products on you the way that you know some of the, the, the trunk club type things or the, the Chapar kind of things can, can um, propose. What, what's that range? So, I, I, gosh, it's a big question. So I think, I think, I think fashion is, is weird. Um, it, is, it is like, you know, if you're gonna start an e-commerce business, first question you ask yourself is why is Amazon not gonna crush you? And Amazon has not made as much progress in fashion um, versus almost any other vertical it's put its mind to. And, you know, and it's still trying and it still may succeed, but you know, a lot of the brands, the luxury brands, um, have a, are, are challenged where, basically they're paranoid about their brands, and rightly so, because their own brand allows them to charge very healthy margins. And they're, they're rightly paranoid about anything that can devalue that brand and being shown in a platform that is synonymous with everything from A to Z, high to low, sales, discounts. Um, you know, being shown next to teapots and toilet plungers is potentially a damaging experience for them. And so the brands rightly say, look, I'm not going to go and choose the short-term gain over the long-term benefit and health of my brand. So, you know, but, but already there, you're seeing a distinction between, like, the commodity commerce of what Amazon does and the emotional commerce of what, say, drives fashion. And if we think about the places that we typically buy fashion in the real world, they tend to be places that just sell fashion. You know, boutiques tend to mostly be fashion, department stores mostly fashion, the brands typically just fashion. Um, so it's kind of like it's all, like outlier by itself. Um, and so that was kind of one of the first decisions that we took, which is like, we are just going to do this thing and we're just going to try to do it as best we can because it doesn't tend to play well with other verticals. And separately, you know, it's, well, it's big enough to sustain a big business and high margin enough. Um, but philosophically, we should just try to do one thing as best we can and not get that diluted across multiple verticals. So, so you know, once you've, just, once you've realized that it is, you know, a thing unto itself, 
you know, there are different, different user journeys. There's search and discovery. Within discovery, uh, well, you've also got different mindsets of people who are entering this. So fashion is something that's touched everyone in this room. You know, no, one, no one here is, is, is naked, thankfully. <laughs> but um, you know, there are some people who love fashion and it's a complete joy and it's a form of entertainment. You know, in quiet moments at work, they will log on and have a browse and see what's going on. And there are people at the other end of the scale who see it as, you looking at anyone there? Our colleague Tom. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the best dressed dude at seed camp. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got the other end of the spectrum, which is people who just see it like, you know, fuck, I live in a world where I have to get dressed and, you know, I don't necessarily... <laughs> um, you know, and how do I... How, how do I navigate this? Yeah. You know, and so you'll see, like, there are, there are companies which I think help that latter group. Mm. You know, I think Outfittery or Trunk Club or maybe Thread.com are here to help people who don't necessarily love fashion mm. but, but, you know, have to, 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 to operate in this world. You know, and then I say we are in the other end of that spectrum, which is like we are for people who really love it, who you know find find it like they love coming in a few times a day to see what's just dropped from their favorite designers, to see lists made by you know interesting folks, to understand um, you know the history behind certain fashion trends, even you know, and I think understanding you know what the sort of mindset of the user is is super important, obviously, to to the sort of product that you end up uh, building, and then. You know, once you have that, you can decide what sort of flavor of product, whether it's consignment, whether it's, you know, these sort of trunk shipping or whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, social. You know, I think if you're a teenage blogger, um, you have a different association or a different relationship with luxury fashion than you do if you are, you know, a more affluent, you know, 30 or 40 year old. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that will color the sort of product you build. So you, your answer has kind of curated it, uh, the, the list of... of um possibilities down to what list is. And within that spectrum though, there are still probably two different pivots that you could have a theory have taken. Mm -hmm. One of which is you could have gone to the brands themselves or, or editorials or something where there's an authority already that can curate on on uh, on on behalf of, of themselves or on behalf of a large group of, of brands. And alternatively, it's editorial teams, you know, people who are specialists but may themselves not necessarily have brands. They're above social, but they're not quite an authority. It's not like having, and wh where do you think that those two connect? How, how do you build out a community of people that are authorities versus uh, going down the path of, of doing biz dev relationships with either brands yeah. or other authorities that then you can piggyback off of their curation? So, you know, I, I think we, as part of this sort of the social beginnings of the business, we went quite hard down the UGC route. Yeah. Uh, and we just didn't see it perform very well. And, you know, you can look at, like, social curation for Pinterest, and obviously it works super well, but then, like, the barrier to consuming content is low. And, like, most people like lol cats and interesting recipes and all that sort of stuff. Like, it's far more universal than actually saying, here is a shirt, you should buy it. Um, you know, and, and again, fashion is a very unique statement uh, to who we are. And uh, typically, you know, I think like I could make a list of 10 items and, ha and because I have no authority in the fashion space, no one would listen to me. Or a very influential person could make a list of exactly the 10, same 10 items and they would all sell out. You know, and because it's very emotional, very subjective, that context of who is making the recommendation is, is quite critical be found. And that's why, you know, when you look on the homepage and you'll see lists spread out the, the product in, in, the, in the coming days and, and weeks, you know, it'll be the lists that perform the best, which will typically be 
lifts made by the brands or authorities or influencers, lifts that are generated by our data. So we have our in-house editorial team that will look at these are the 10 white shoes that are trending in Paris right now. And I think that's kind of interesting, more so for guys, but we're kind of testing these sort of differences because we do have both genders on the platform and, and, and they do work in quite different ways. Um, you know, and so I feel like we're getting further from this sort of UGC. Um, you, brought the, you brought the editorial capacity in-house. Yeah. And, and you've now created the authority from within the editorial team. Well, I mean, I think, you know, we, we have created some editorial team in-house, mm. but we also still work a lot with external authorities. Mm. You know, and, you know, our philosophy has been certainly with, you know, products, let's work with the best creators of products, mm. uh, you know, the items, the best retailers of those items, mm. rather than do that ourselves. Mm. And I think we like to extend that philosophy to working with the best curators of product. Mm. And what I think one of the challenges when it comes to curation, you know, it is that the bigger you become, the less curated you become by definition. And so, you know, you look at, you look at a huge department store, there is very little curation there. You know, the department store is 1% of our inventory, so we, you know, if you were just to go through all the items we have, it is the polar opposite of curation. Mm. But even a small boutique, and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're friends of mine who started boutiques who have had pressures from you know, the, the, the sort of finance team to say, look, we need to grow and grow the buy. And the creative folks are saying, well, if you grow the buy, you dilute what we stand for. And uh, sometimes this causes boutiques you know, to, to, to fall apart or to mm. split. Um, you know, and so you, know, you, you look at you know, some mid-sized stores have to cater to polar opposites. There are some menswear sites which will cater to very traditional men in the city and you know, gay men living in Glasgow. You know, and you have like a studded Louboutin shoe that is that is you know great for some people and not for others, and they have to coexist. And that every time you see that item, that kind of makes you feel like, is this the right place for me? Mm. And so that's where you know we believe in these sort of hyper curations, you know, ten, twenty items mm. that are made by somebody who you have an, you have a connection with, a respect for. Yeah. And you know, when you when you want a discovery journey, we believe that is the best way for you to navigate. So what advice would you give to a startup that's just starting out um, and wants to get uh, that early biz dev relationship that creates that link for authority? So in, the, in this case, there must have been the first person. So if it's not your editorial team where you've hired in yeah. and it's somebody who has external authority, how did you convince them to like jeopardize their brand on your brand? It's a good question. Um, The, you know, we, you have this sort of chicken and egg issue when starting a marketplace. And, you know, we were fortunate in that the affiliate ecosystem was, was you know, reasonably mature or maturing at that point. And, you know, if you go into a, you know, the, the retailers are actually looking for the right sort of outlets on an affiliate model to go and drive traffic to them. And so, you know, yes, we had like zero sales, two people, uh, and if we wanted to sign a retailer from scratch, it would have been impossible. But you go to, you know, to the, the person managing the affiliate um, uh, program for the retailer or the brand, and you suddenly your, your alignment is it's pretty good because he wants, in this case, uh, with Netaporte, wants to get more traffic to his site. Mm. We said, look, we're just going to work with fashion, predominantly luxury fashion, and we showed him mock-ups, and he was like, okay, this looks like a good environment for us. And that was critical, by the way, having showing the brands and stores that we were good custodians for their products and their brands. Absolutely critical for all the reasons that I said Amazon was, was, was challenged. 
Um, and you know, there is a, there is a you know the from a technical point of view, you know, there are affiliate networks which kind of help make these relationships very easy. And so that's how we started. We started very early on with Netaporte. And you know, thankfully, a partner like that, which is you know such a prestigious partner in the online fashion space, meant that whenever we spoke to anyone else, we said, "Well, we work in Etaporte," and that was pretty much all we had to say at the beginning. And so we ended up getting the supply very quickly uh, because because of because of the partners were already attuned to to trying to get more traffic. And then the demand is something we built up over time in the different iterations of the product. You know, and then. Um, you know, we, we saw that the biggest customer um, requirement or, or feature request was, I'd love to be able to buy something natively. You know, being, if I have three things I want to buy to get redirected to three different sites, you know, sometimes they might not be mobile optimized. And mobile was not really a thing in 2010, but it was obviously rapidly becoming a thing. And so, you know, we had one of these huge fork in the road moments saying, look, do we need to build, be transactional? And, you know, do we, how big a believer are we in mobile? And I think we kind of knew that we were, we were pretty, pretty, pretty big believers. Uh, and are we going to be able to build something that's transactional? Uh, so, you know, universal cart, if you will, that is going to please partners, please consumers, do good things for our economics and be technically feasible. And, and that's probably the biggest bet we place in the company. And we talk a lot internally about, do you know what I mean by local maximus? Why don't you, okay. why don't you go so, through so, so like, you know, you can find like a, a model of doing something and then you're trying to iterate on that model and try to get to like the optimum state. So I kind, of, I kind of think about like getting my screwdriver out and like tightening and tightening and testing things to get to the top of this peak yeah. of performance. But what you don't know when you're in this sort of small iteration mindset is that there may be a higher peak somewhere else in a totally different model. And in order to get there, you kind of have to go all the way down the valley and up to this, to this new place. And you know, with the affiliate model, we saw that we were getting to a pretty decent peak there, but we looked up and said, oh, universal checkout, that's a much higher peak, but it's going to take everything we've got to go and traverse this, this valley of doom to get up to this place. I mean, you referred to list as a marketplace, so was that the defining moment when it went from an affiliate site to marketplace? Yeah, yeah, that was it. And so then when you made this transition to a marketplace, what, what would you say is the key thing, the lesson that you would uh, in part on founders considering creating a marketplace, uh, what's the first thing that, that you tackled in order to generate the foundation for a marketplace growth? Well, you know, I mentioned how, how wonderful it was to have an affiliate ecosystem in place and have all the partners know that this is a great thing. You know, we were building the first universal checkout in fashion. We were going to our partners and saying, this is mobile, it's happening, convincing some of them that people are going to buy on their smartphones. Even today, they still don't believe it's going to happen. Um, you know, and it was just a completely the opposite, just a very, very long, painful, difficult process to, to kind of make these things happen. Some of the biz dev talks, you know, lasted 18 months, two years, you know, just talking and talking and talking. Um, and so as quickly as, as it worked being an affiliate, it was a slow working, you know, in this marketplace model. But the fact that we'd built up hundreds of millions in sales when we started this conversation with our partners meant that we had, they had the bandwidth to listen to us and um, you know, understand that this, this was going to be um, you know, the future. And also, it gave us a chance to understand what their big concerns were. You know, and I think you know, we learned that um, you know, sharing customer, you know, sharing who the buyer is with a retailer or brand is really important. And we had, you know, secondly, doesn't matter if you're a big store or a tiny brand or a tiny boutique, you do not have any engineering resource to spare. No one does. 
And so building a way, basically finding a way where we took on all the integration pain. This is also a vertical which by and large doesn't know what an API is. So again, lots of technical integration challenges which we found a way to solve ourselves so that we could go to partners and say literally, you know, it's the simplest thing in the world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, and that was, you know, that was, you know, it's like a two-year project. You know, you're kind of going through the desert and you're like, you know, you, you have to have like, the faith that you know this is going to happen, coupled with the um, ability to look hard truths and say, you know, what, you know, this this isn't, um, you know, that uh, we had like a lot of faith that it was going to happen, and, and uh, you know, I think ultimately we proved that uh, that it is, and a lot of other people yeah. have tried to build universal carts in the meantime and have come across all the problems that we were looking at in 2013. Yeah. Um, you know, the people who are trying to do it with human, with people basically inputting orders as opposed to a fully scalable way, you know, with PCI compliant, people who are trying to do that. And I guess, like, there's a, lot, there's a lot that's great about fake it before you make it, but when you're dealing with people's payments and security and fraud, you don't really get to, to ask for forgiveness, you know, so you just have to make sure that everything is, like, super tight. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was such a, a critical point in your company that effectively it probably felt like taking five steps backwards and then you have you kind of sorted out a few of the key issues, and then started experiencing growth. Mm -hmm. And then you probably moved to to raising uh, a more meaningful round. And maybe you can walk us through a little bit about some of the the anecdotes that maybe you want to share as part of your fundraising history. I'm, I'll give you some ideas. Maybe um, what it was like raising a Series A investment, or maybe experience fundraising in the U.S. versus Europe, or or maybe I, I know that in the latest round you have. Um, uh, the billionaire owner of, of LVMH is part of your your investor group. You know what it's like to have a strategic uh, investor in in the company. Maybe any one of those, or maybe yeah. we, we can cover them all. So I think like one of the first investors that I met regarding the business um, was like incredibly early on. It was a guy called Alex Zubiaga. Yeah. And uh, you know, we went, we we had this view that we weren't going to raise money. That everything was going to be reasonably straightforward. We were going to make, be able to make money, and and therefore we didn't want to know if we wanted to go down the fundraising path. Um, and you know, when we met, he was a big believer that innovation was about to happen in fashion again, early two thousand ten. And you know, it was just like, what you're doing sounds cool. Let me help. And I was always kind of like wary about people who say like, oh, you know, happy to help. So I kind of pushed him a bit and said, you know, who do you think I should meet? And he said, oh, you should meet my friend Tori. And I was like, okay. So when I was in New York. He you know, went with me and we went in front of, to meet his friend Tori, who turned out to be Tori Birch, who's, for those of you who don't know, runs a multi-billion dollar fashion business. You know, and he was not an investor, he was just like, trying to generally be helpful. And so when I said we wanted to raise a seed round, he immediately said, okay, I'll lead it and I'll help you put it together. And every single round we have done since then, he has increased his stake, increased his stake. You know, he's not a typical seed investor in that you know, he likes to get in deals early and then build increasingly meaningful um, you know, stakes in the businesses and has been you know, an incredible supporter in what we've done. Um, so that, that for me is just like a really, it's a really nice part of the fundraising process that we can meet somebody on day one and throughout the whole life cycle of the business he's been supportive in terms of introductions, in terms of, you know, when you have a seed investor who's always looking to invest more that sends a wonderful message to the rest of the um, you know, prospective investors. So that's like some of the good times. Um, you know, there are, uh, you know, what else? I, we, you know, we got, to, we got to work with Balderton again, which is my old firm in the Series B, and that was fantastic to, to, to work with somebody who I'd worked with a lot um, beforehand. Um, 
you know, when we, we you mentioned we got LVMH involved, uh, or sorry, LVMH is controlling shareholder, and you know that again was another nice surprise. You know, for me, it was important to have validation from both the fashion community as well as the tech community. And with the tech investors we had, Excel and Balderton, I felt like, you know, when we were talking to tech platforms or trying to hire engineers, there was a halo effect that gave us a degree of, uh, um, which made us look better. Whereas, you know, on the fashion side, we were a bit lighter there. And so, um, you know, having that sort of validation from, from you know, one of the biggest um, groups, uh, you know, in fashion, uh, was kind of the main thesis behind wanting to do the deal, and has actually ended up being being largely helpful. Um, and I think what I hadn't realised, or an unexpected benefit, was actually I spent a decent amount of time in Paris with um, you know with the investors, with the all the digital heads of the maison of the the brands in the group, which they have organised, and, and it's been you know very helpful from from a more of a strategic point of view as well. Um, you know, I think I'd been weary about taking strategic investment earlier. Uh, you know, and um, you know, if you, you know, I was also pleased to be taking investment from the shareholder, the, the the owner, as opposed to the entity. You know, and I think the other thing I'd say about it is, you know, if you know, when taking strategic investment, you know, it's it's essential that the terms are all super clean, that there's no sort of first right uh, of refusal if you want to sell the business or anything like that, which can end up. You know, it may seem like miles away, but those sort of things can end up really um, complicating things you know, further down the line. So this is something else that we were um, pleased that, that uh, our expectations were aligned there as well. Mm. So the, the, for the founders that are based in, in Europe, um, raising oh, yeah, the US. In, in US or, or here, I mean, what, how has that yeah. changed? But maybe it's not so much of comparison between two, but how has that changed? Because from when, yeah. when we were you know, in, starting off in venture, so much has changed. But how has that experience been in terms of uh, reception? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, uh, gosh, there was, you know, when we were investing in, in, in the UK in, in, you know, 10 years ago or so, yeah. you know, there were not a lot of great companies coming out of London. You know, there was a, we had to go and look around the east coast of the States, you know, Israel, a bit of Stockholm, a bit of all around Europe. And that's obviously changed a huge amount since, since then. Um, this guy, Alex, I mentioned earlier, the seed investor, he's based in New York, but he had a bunch of businesses here. And, and you know, distance from London to New York, the travel is actually pretty manageable. Uh, and we've always had this question about the West Coast. You know, and there was, we were, definitely when we were very small, we were like, well, you know, maybe we're too small for the West Coast because a lot of the investors believe at the seed stage that they can add value by like, being right next to you and helping you work through some of these really, really tough problems, uh, which, I, which I think makes sense. Um, and so we kind of shelved that until, uh, until we were bigger. And I think what we what we found, and I've spoken to other fashion businesses, um, you know, the big fashion businesses, and I think we've always found conversations in the valley challenging. And I think it's it's a function of two things. One is that you know, fashion is not part of the culture there. You know, and I think you know some of the <laughs> some some of the pitch meetings were like, let me explain to you how fashion works. It's like, you know, those margins, no, that can't be right. You know, and I think like there is, you know, and investors obviously naturally want to invest in things that they're passionate about, knowledgeable about. And you know, I think if you live uh, or work in New York, in London, in Paris, in Hong Kong, and these are all cities where we've taken our investment from, you know, fashion is part of life there. It's part of culture there. Um, and I think that's quite, and I look at other big fashion businesses, it's exactly the same. 
So I think that was kind of learning number one, you know, make sure that there is that sort of... Um, Investor relevance. Yeah, an affinity. You know, this is... Yeah. And I think the second thing is a little bit more... Um, maybe blunt, but, you know, if a, an investor from California wants to invest in your business, um, typically they'll be looking at around 10 flights a year from London to California, you know, there and back. And that is just like, you know, it's just, that has an impact on quality of life. You know, and if, uh, you know, so I think, like, if you look at the U.S. investors who've come into London, um, you know, East Coast is different, but there's not that much of West Coast investors coming here. Um, and, you know, sometimes they'll come in and not take a board seat. Sometimes they'll come in and arrange for board, seat, board meetings to happen in their offices uh, in, in Sand Hill Row. Um, but, you know, that is something that isn't talked about very much, but I think is, when it comes down to it, another constraint that, that you know, all London businesses will have mm. uh, when trying to convince somebody to, to invest in the business here. Mm. Okay, the last, the last thread I want to just touch upon, uh, and it's almost like bringing it back down to the very origins of, of List, is, is culture. Culture, how that changes with the number of employees you have, how, I mean, I remember visiting your offices while you were around the corner over here, getting shot at with Nerf guns uh, from some of your, your employees. And, you know, how did you design that or did, did it just happen? And, and then and how, did, how did that evolve and, and change over the course of like 10 employees or 20 or 30 or 50 breaking points? So I, I don't think it was consciously designed, but it is consciously protected. Um, you know, I think, I feel like there was, a, there, uh, maybe we were 15, 20 people, and at that point everyone knows everyone else, we're also working in one room, in one room and you know, the culture has become this thing, and, and you obviously, one of the great joys of running your own business is you get to choose who you want to work with, um, which is fundamentally one of the reasons why I love coming into work every morning. Uh, and then some of, the, some of the new hires were saying, well, you know, what, what, is it? what is our culture? We talk about culture, we say how important it is, we say how like, it enables us to do what we do and you know if the internet you know if, the, if, our, if our business is around in 100 years you know maybe the internet won't exist anymore and like how are our, how are our cultural values going to keep us um you know guiding us uh, and so they asked me to kind of like write something something make make a you know somehow put this down on paper and i must admit i was a little bit skeptical because uh, it's kind of a weird exercise when you're trying to take something um it's very difficult to, to, to pin down but uh you know i did it and it ended up being an incredibly useful thing to do. And you know, you gotta you gotta make sure that you don't just like pick super generic stuff, you know, or stuff that's obvious. You know, like Enron had like integrity as one of their sort of cultural values, <laughs> um, which is obviously. But like you know, who doesn't want to, who doesn't want to have integrity? You know, I think like try to figure out what it is that kind of differentiates. Um, and now you know, every new person that starts, somewhere now 110 or so people. You know, I will sit down with them and say, look, this is the culture. This is what we believe in. This is, you know, why we think it's important. Um, you know, it's really, you know, when, we, when you're growing quite quickly, I think we were about 20 people 20 months ago. You know, when you're growing quite quickly, the challenge that you face is that culture can get diluted when you suddenly add, you know, 80% of your workforce hasn't been there for, like, six months. And so going to the effort of educating them and saying, look, you know, you know, th this is why we like to be super non-hierarchical, mm. you know, and it will slow you down because you will have to explain yourself at every, at every turn. However, we think this is really important that when engineers are building something, they fully understand why, and also they'll have some great comments mm. back to you. And, you know, so, so, um, and what were the numbers where you felt that these 
gap started forming? Was it like after 10 employees, 20, 30? Yeah, I mean, I think like, the pain is not linear. There are definitely inflection points. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like 40 was, uh, was definitely an inflection point. Um, you know, it began to not all work in one room. And there were little microcultures forming as well, uh, which is kind of interesting. And so we tried to sort of shuffle the seating plan um, probably about every, every, every sort of four to six months to, to kind of try to adjust for that. Um, at 100 people, we're certainly finding that there is an, you know, another um, inflection point. You know, and we spoke, uh, you know, I spoke to a bunch of founders who had much bigger teams, and I asked them this question, and they kind of gave me the same answer. And it's a little bit like, you know there's a truck that's going to hit you, and you're just trying to brace yourself as, as much as possible because you, know, you don't really know what the extent of the pain is because it'll be different for every business. You just know to expect something um, and to you know, try to sort of over-communicate to see if that sort of solves, solves the problem. Yeah. Um, and, but that's, that's really like the main, the main challenge is communication is like so much, so much of the, or what we build has stakeholders now across different teams, across different time zones, and how do we make sure that everyone's aligned, that we're not duplicating work, we're not missing a key bit of input? You know, I think um, you know, one of the things that we are going to try, uh, certainly when it comes to time zones, is like having permanent webcams. So you can just walk into a meeting room and the whole New York team will be there. Um, you know, I, I heard that Google have done this and seems mm -hmm. to work well, I don't know. But, um, you know, and then I guess there's a lot of travel. Um, so, you know, I'll go to New York every month. Um, yeah, this is great. Actually, a lot of our team go on holiday in New York, and they'll just stop by the office in New York for like, you know, coffee, say hello to everyone, and it's great to, you know, we definitely encourage that. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that, you know, when it comes to culture, multiple locations definitely adds another degree of complexity. Mm. Cool. So with that, uh, we have an audience filled of uh, SeedCamp uh, uh, founders, and we would like to open it up for questions, and maybe just uh, we can have. Um, Let's start with you, and then I'll repeat your question just so that the people in the audience can hear as well. Sure. Uh, I guess my question is more around what your future plans are, and if you're looking to expand more into sort of formal luxury wear, or you're sticking to fashion. Formal? Yeah, what, what just fashion? What, when you say formal luxury wear, do you mean like dinner jackets or ball gowns? Or? Corporate wear, but corporate wear that's a bit more stylish than just traditional suits. Yeah, I mean, so. so you know, again, we kind of think about our customer and think about the sort of needs that she has or he has. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of them will shop at work. We see, like, Monday morning, it's a peak time. Interestingly, mon uh, mon Monday, Monday morning is also a peak time for, for, for returns. It's kind of interesting. A lot of people will be thinking about, you know, uh, you know looking down the barrel of a five-day work week can maybe, you know, uh, Dolce and maybe Gabbana can help them through this, through this, uh, this week. Um, but you know, we know that they're, they're at work, so you know, a lot of the email addresses that we get on purchasing are you know, corporate, um, often corporate addresses from consultancies or banks. And so you know, it makes sense for us to carry, carry those as long as they are fashionable. Mm. You know, I think where we, you know, the litmus test we have is we try to do fashion rather than apparel. So you know, we can imagine, as a rule of thumb, look at a crowd of people outside Fashion Week in New York or in London and say, you know, there might be some teenage bloggers there, there might be some folks in the industry there, you know, there might be sort of passers-by who work across the way who just pop yeah. down, like, you know, what are they wearing? What brands? And so try, not, try to be a little bit less price agnostic and just say, does that fit our litmus test of what is fashion? And then, you know, things like what uh, Asda might carry or what, you know, Walmart might carry in the States, 
you know, that's just that's just kind of what we what we term a power rather than a fashion, and we know that's not going to provide a good experience for our, those customers. Mm. Cool. Other questions? We're in the back. Yeah. Um, yeah, my question is about menswear. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm just curious to see the very first moments of women shopping in different way. Uh, where you see men consuming over the next five years, the trends and how they consume stuff online, and, and segue that into almost how you see your, how you, when you move along your growth curve. Trends in men, men shopping and growth curves. And then how, I mean, obviously you've got your early adopters who like to go on list, but how in five years will list be hitting men, specifically shoppers, and getting them to use list, which kind of the same thing. Um, so, you know, we, we have had menswear from day one, and that is because uh, I'm a man and I want to shop on the site. <laughs> and I feel like if I can use the product, that's going to help, you know, understand what's working and what's not. Um, you know, it, economically, it never really made that much sense. Um, you know, we have seen it become a bigger piece. It's still maybe about 20% of the business. Um, and I feel like it's sort of on a... Uh, it's kind of like the the, 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 the the wave is slightly out of phase. So, you know, it took it took women it took uh, a long time for women's fashion to, to kind of move online. And if you think about like Netaporte and Ukes and ASOS all started their businesses in 2000, and there were sort of slow growth stories which eventually picked up you know considerable scale. And I think for menswear, we're still just like earlier in that journey. Um, so I guess that's that's one thing I'd say. I'd say, you know, there are. I'm not, I don't think menswear will ever be bigger than women's wear. You know, we do see it, it vary uh, by geography. So I think like in markets like South Korea, we see a higher proportion of menswear sales. We also see a very different set of brands being sold there. So in, in, in Korea, it's a lot of, you know, Rick Owens or Givenchy, whereas like the menswear that we'll sell in New York is a lot of like Ralph Lauren, you know, a bit more, uh, a bit less adventurous or less um, directional. Um, you know, but still, like, if you compare the inventories, the menswear inventory that we're able to carry from online stores is still a fraction of, uh, of women's wear. So, you know, I think we'll see it grow maybe to, at best, 40% of our business. Um, but I just think, uh, yeah, I don't think it'll ever get as big as... as big is there as yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say. Like, you know, I, I spoke earlier that like a lot of our consumers will see it as a form of entertainment, and I feel that that behaviour skews more towards women than towards men. Um, you know, the search function I think is is used more by men than by women. Um, you know, so I think we have to um, you know, tailor the product for each gender increasingly, and we're thinking about ways to do that as well. Um, but uh, I think in terms of fundamental appetite, there still is a, a mismatch. So b before we wrap up this, this particular section, I, I want to ask one concluding question, which I forgot to ask earlier, um, which is the balancing of a family as a founder, um, being that you, know, you are a family man and the early stages of a company demand so much. How, what words do you have for founders who are either single uh, or, or just sole founders and are, are, have a family and trying to balance that? And how do you, do you, like, do you, do you tell your, your, your mate, hey, next two years I'm, I'm just this? How, how do you balance that? Um, I mean, I think, I think everyone does it differently. Uh, 
you know, it's funny that there's, there's you know, I, I've been dating my, my then girlfriend, now wife, I think for about seven years before we got married. A lot of my friends who founded businesses are eight, nine, 10, 11 years of dating beforehand. And it's kind of interesting how like, you, you're very risk uh, averse in some areas and, and happy to take on risk in others and maybe you can only cope with a net amount of risk overall. Um, but you know, what is, <laughs> what is, what is, um, I mean, what's strange is like, you know, I find myself making decisions about my personal life based in business. And so, you know, I've, I've been dating Izzy for many years before I started the business. We had a very stable, very solid foundation. I think it was probably, business was about, you know, two years, no, three years old, no, two years old um, before, uh, you know, we got engaged and almost three before we got married, uh, you know, and at that point we were maybe, um, you know, 15 people or so, 10, 15 people. And, you know, I, I wanted, I didn't, I didn't really want to get married until that the business was in a slightly more stable place, uh, which is, I think, quite bad logic, you know, because when you think it was far more important to me, the relationship I have with my wife than my business, but you get so obsessed with your business and you work every single hour and it consumes you uh, to the degree that you're starting making these slightly backwards decisions, which retrospectively I think, you know, not good. Um, you, know, uh, you know, and you kind of think about, well, having a kid. Um, but can you afford to, I mean, I, I know it's kind of a almost counterintuitive question to ask based upon the statement you just made, but could you, Credibly say that the amount of time that you gave it as a, as an obsession, um, and had you had more of a balance, would that have created a, a lag? Would you have been able to achieve what you achieved? You know, I think again, like everyone's different. Everyone finds a yeah. way to make it work. Um, you know, for me, whether I got, whether or not I got married would have made zero difference mm. in in the sense of like I probably would have been able to be. I probably should have got married earlier. I probably would have been able to like you know. I think having a kid changes it a lot. And, um, you know, there's so many stories about people who say, you know, having a kid helped me focus and become much more efficient. Um, I must admit, I haven't found that change. You know? <laughs> that, 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 that's kind of the same as it was before. You know, and, you know, I just kind of, I try to do the best I can. So, you know, I try to be home for bedtime every night and then we'll work in the evenings. And, you know, also having like a baby, it's, you know, she sleeps like 12 hours from seven o'clock, so it doesn't really matter if I'm working at night and my wife's a lawyer and she'll work at night as well. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think have, if I'd had a child at the same time as starting the business, same first year, I, I think it would have been a big struggle for me. And maybe I'm just not the right sort of person who's able to balance both those things. Uh, you know, and I had to, you know, wait until the business was maybe 50 people before having, you know, a, you know, a child. Um, but there are so many examples of people who, you know, started businesses and families at the same time that, you know, I wouldn't use my own example, uh, you know, as a meaningful data point. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a useful data point, if any. Okay, so let's, um, let's just give Chris a big round of applause for his time. And for those of you listening on the podcast, until next time, bye.